0: Well, good morning, LifePoint. So glad to have you here again to worship the Lord with us. Again, happy Memorial Day weekend. It's actually going to be nice for once in Montana, I think. Uh, Looking at nice weather or not rain for uh, Memorial Day weekend. So I hope you got great plans and uh, hope you remember uh, why we celebrate as well. Those that have fallen uh, for our freedom. We would not be here, of course, uh, had it not been for those that... Uh, fought for our freedom and died for our freedom, which of course reminds us of the sacrifice of Jesus and uh, what he has done to secure our freedom from sin. So I hope you remember those thoughts and keep that in mind uh, as well. Again, if you're visiting, text the word welcome uh, at some point before you leave today, and uh, we'd love to connect with you. If you got a Bible, go to Joshua chapter 11 with me this morning. Joshua 11. If you don't have the scriptures, we'll have it up on the screen for you to follow along with us as well today. But how many parents in the room this morning? Raise your hand. I'm a parent, I have children, and I claim them on my taxes, and that's about it, (laughs) right? It's kind of a sad day when they, like, get old enough and you can't claim them. Like, what? Like, I can't do that anymore? Um, But yeah, parents in the room, glad you're here this morning. Uh, Those of you that are not parents, we're also glad that you are here with us today, this morning. But I have a question I want to direct... Uh, Really, first to kind of parents. I'm going to relate it to parents, but I'm going to also relate it really to all of us this morning. And I think everyone can kind of relate to this uh, in some way, shape, or form. But how many of you this morning as a parent, you want to protect your children from the evils of the world? Go ahead and raise your hand, right? Probably every parent. We're in church. That's the right answer, right? Raise my hand. Um, to that, yeah, I mean, I think that's that 's something we can all relate to. I want to protect my kids from the evils of the world, from maybe you know destructive habits, that sort of thing um, if you 're not a parent, if you 're single or if you 're married and you don 't have kids this morning, I, I think it 's probably safe to say this as well that you want to protect yourself and you also want to protect maybe your spouse from those same dangers, right like we don 't want to see the people that we love. Uh, in our lives, make destructive choices, fall into destructive habits, whatever those habits might be, and we could list all kinds of things uh, that are present in our world today, Um, but we don't want to see them become a victim or a statistic to those kinds of things. Even if you're not, you know, you're not in a relationship or whatever the case might be, um, you don't want to see your friends, right? Like we would pretty much do whatever it took to keep our friends, our loved ones, our children Um, from falling into any kind of destructive uh, habit or behavior in life. And I think we can all relate to that this morning. We want the best for our kids, for our spouse, for our own lives, for our friends. That's just kind of natural, I think, uh, within human nature. But this is also true, uh, that that God this morning also wants the best for us. Uh, That God is a good father, a loving father, a patient, long-suffering, merciful father desires uh, that you and I as his children, if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've said yes to the offer of grace, you're in a relationship with God. And God desires as a good father to keep you from the destructive behaviors in life, just like uh, you as a parent, right, want to do that in your, chil- in your children's lives. So does God want to do that in our lives as well. Um, and so God knows the best for us, doesn't he? Like, God knows what's best. Um, a lot of times, as a parent, you probably have experienced this or will experience this at some point. Your kids are looking at you like, why, why are you making me do this? Why are you saying no to this? Why are you not allowing me to, you know, be involved in this or, or have this experience in life? And as a parent, you know, you do your best to kind of explain to your kids, well, honey, you know, this is why. Like, I want to protect you from this evil, from this danger. Like, that is normal. And our kids don't always see that, Right? And the same is true with you and I as God's children. We don't always see what God is doing. And here's like the, the biggest thing that we don't see when it comes to our relationship with God is we don't see sin the same way God sees it. Uh, we don't see the, how destructive our sin can be. We don't see how impactful uh, our sin can be, not only on our own lives, but on the lives of other people around us. Like God knows, God sees it, but we often don't have the same view, the same perspective on sin as God does. And in our series today called Strong and Courageous in the Book of Joshua, we're going to be kind of finishing and wrapping this uh, series up here in the next few weeks as we kind of near the end of kind of the conquest and that sort of thing. But we're going to be challenged this morning to change our view of sin. Uh, to, to change our perspective on how we see sin, that we would begin as God's children to see sin and, and see the destructive uh, uh, habits and abilities that, that often come into our lives, that we would see those things the same way that God sees them today. We're gonna to find that to be true here in Joshua chapter number 11 today. But here's the bottom line this morning, and that is this, is that you and I would declare war on our sin. That we would leave here this morning and we would say, I am leaving church this morning, declaring war on my sin, declaring war on my flesh. That we would begin to see sin the same way that God sees sin. That we would stop making excuses in our lives. That we would stop feeding our sin. That we would stop even hiding from our own sin, and declare war on sin. Declare war on your sin this morning. This is the bottom line, and that sounds pretty hostile this morning, doesn't it? Like, wow, okay. You know, we're de- declaring war on something. Like, why would we need to do that? Why would we need to have such a, uh, a, a vicious view of sin, such a, uh, an idea perspective that we would go through life and say, I am at war with my flesh. I am at war with the sin within my life. Why? Would we need to do that? Well, if you're new to church this morning, if you're new to Christianity, if it's something new to you this morning, the, the basic teaching of the Bible is that sin separates us from God. Like if you are familiar with, with, with church, you're familiar with the Bible, you understand that sin is kind of a big deal, right? We're, 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 we're made to be in a relationship with our Creator. That is the truth. That God desires for us to be in a relationship with him. We're never meant to live apart from our relationship with Jesus. In fact, in the very beginning, God walked with and talked with Adam and Eve. Just think about that for a moment. That God desired from the very beginning to be in a relationship and walk with His creation, and the same is true today. God wants to walk with you. But one day, of course, we know the story, right? Adam and Eve broke that command of God. They they ate of that tree. They disobeyed, and what began to happen is, consequently, sin began to be something that you and I inherited. We were born with a nature, a propensity to do wrong. I always uh, say this when I'm kind of explaining uh, to people what sin is and what sin is like. No one had to teach you to do wrong, right? No one pulled you aside in life and said, hey, you are so good and so perfect. Let me show you, right, how to do wrong. No one had to do that. Why? Because we were born with a sin nature. Guess what? Uh, You were born already condemned. That is the reality of inherited sin. Lucky us, right? But this is the truth of Scripture, And and it goes even a little bit further. What what the Bible describes about sin is is this, is the word death. What we earn for our sin is death. In fact, it's Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, which says the wages of sin is death. That's some bad news, let me just tell you this morning, right? That's some very bad news. It's really the worst news uh, that you and I as human beings could get because it means this, separation from God for eternity, That's bad news, right? But the good news is the latter half of that verse, right? Uh, uh, The good news is that uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Uh, Wages of sin, bad news, uh, gift, good news. The good news is that humanity does not have to deal with the consequences of our inherited sin because of what Jesus has already done for us, right? He died for us, He was buried for us, uh, and He rose from the grave for us. This is why we're here, right? And it is the timeless truth that we as the church, not just me as the pastor, but we as a Christian community are called to share with the world. It's called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now you might be wondering, why am I sharing this with you this morning and how does it relate to Joshua chapter number 11? Well, let me just explain real quick Listen, if God was, was willing to send Jesus, think about this just for a moment. If God was willing to send Jesus to even become a human being, to put on human flesh and live on this earth for some 33 and a half years, go to a cross, pay our penalty for sin, die on a cross, be in a grave, rise victoriously three days later, why, why would Jesus do that? Doesn't that tell us that sin is a pretty big deal? If God were to go through All of that trouble, doesn't that tell us that sin today is a pretty big deal? Don't you think God knows something that we may not know? That sin not only has consequences in this life right now, but it has eternal consequences. This is some pretty heavy stuff. And these are things that we don't often think about. We don't often ponder. We don't often internalize the depth of sin and what it has done in our lives and what it continues to do. Well, when you get to Joshua chapter 11, we're gonna get there here in just a moment. When you get to Joshua chapter 11, we, we arrive at really kind of the last kind of battle scene in the conquest. Uh, the last battle really collectively against the Northern part of Canaan. That's really what Joshua chapter 11 is all about. Chapter 10 was all about the Southern Kings. Chapter 11 is gonna be all about the Northern Kings in the, in the Northern part of Canaan. And in, in, the, in this chapter, it's really the biggest battle that they had ever faced. It's the greatest battle, the greatest enemy that they had ever faced, the largest forces of soldiers that they had ever fought against, and it's the most modernized weaponry that the nation of Israel has ever faced as well. And they defeat them without any difficulty. I'll kind of give you the, the end of the story before I tell you this story but they defeat them without any difficulty whatsoever. And it kind of seems a little anticlimactic when you read the story. It's like, oh, there it is again. Uh, There's a great enemy, and uh, they defeat them with really no problem at all. But that's really not what I want to focus in on this morning, because there's an important phrase this repeated over and over again in chapter number 11. It's a phrase that, that really reveals to us something about God and about his character and about what he thinks about sin, not only then, but even today. And that phrase is this, and I'll kind of give it to you at the beginning so you're kind of looking for it as we go through this this morning. But in Joshua chapter 11, it's repeated five times. And it says this, that Joshua devoted them to destruction— these are phrases that we often read in Scripture that we want to just kind of move on and, and, and not really you know, think about, talk about, uh, and, and concern ourselves with. we just like, oh, that, that's great. Uh, God devoted an entire people group uh, to destruction. But yet you see it over and over and over again in Joshua chapter number 11. Devoted them to destruction. And it seems, it seems uh, harsh. It seems calloused. But this is what happened, and we need to talk about it and how it relates to us this morning, the them. Uh, the them" in, in, uh, in that phrase is really the Canaan, Canaanite kings and uh, this people group that had become so wicked uh, and so sinful. Joshua was to devote them to destruction, and we're going to see why this morning. right? Like why did God want to destroy this entire group of people, these powerful kings, these cities within Canaan? And how does that? Relate to us today. We're going to try to answer that question this morning. But let's read our text and we're going to read kind of all the way through. I'll stop in between and make some comments. And then I'm going to give you four simple practical points uh, this morning that relate to you and I leaving here this morning and declaring war on our sin. Okay, we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Let's read our text Joshua chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 5. It says this When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, uh, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Aksaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, into the, in the Erebus, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in, uh, a really hard word to say that I'm not even going to try, because I've tried throughout this week, and I butchered it every time, but you do your best, Okay. Uh, in verse three, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came in a camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against. Israel. This all sounds very, very familiar. Like, it's almost like, well, I think I've read this before, right? Yeah, you just did in chapter number 10, just with a different group of people, right? All very, very similar uh, to what we saw last week. There's an alliance, right? An alliance of kings who come together and are like, hey, the nation of Israel, uh, man, they're kind of just marching over everybody, right? Let's bring all these kings and bring all our resources and bring all our soldiers together, and let's fight against Joshua. And so there's an alliance, except this alliance is much larger than any group or any force uh, that uh, the nation of Israel has ever faced. In fact, they're described as a great horde. We don't say that very often, a great horde, right? It kind of reminds me of Lord of the Rings, you know? Uh, If you've watched the Lord of the Rings series and uh, all the scenes, all the battles against Sauron, the evil forces of Middle Earth, you know what I mean? It's like you kind of have that imagery uh, in your mind. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And that's okay. Go watch The Lord of the Rings, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But the point is this. It's a pretty imposing threat. It's a large army. It's the largest army they have ever faced. And not only that, these, this army has horses, and they have chariots. And to us, it's like, oh, that's not really a big deal. But to them, it was. If you're a foot soldier, and you don't have horses, and you don't have chariots, to see this force is a pretty imposing threat. This is modern weaponry, right? And this would not be an easy fight. Let's read on and let's find out what happens. In verse number six, it says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. That sounds very familiar, right? Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow, at this time, very specific, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And so Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon, uh, in Mizrahmam, there it is, it's a hard one, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until, uh, until uh, he left none remaining. In verse 9, and Joshua did to them as the Lord had said to him, he hamstr- hamstrung their horses and burned their uh, chariots with fire. And it all really sounds uh, very, very identical to chapter number 10, this alliance of kings, large army, imposing threat, uh, reason to fear, and God says, hey, do not fear them right? There's that command that we talked about last Sunday. Do not fear. Do, do not be controlled by fear. Do not fear your circumstances. And then there's a promise. God gives a promise of victory. I will give all of them this time tomorrow, uh, slain to Israel, and you'll hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. And they did. They did all of those things. And the reason that they burned the chariots and hamstrung the horses, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, like, wow, why would they do that, right? God didn't want them to rely upon those things. God didn't want them to say, oh, now we've got this great army and we've got chariots and we've got weapons and we've got resources. God wanted to always remind the nation of Israel that you have me on their side. And so they do all of this. And as you read this, it seems somewhat inconsequential. It seems a little anticlimactic. They do exactly what God says will happen without any problems whatsoever. Like I've read this before. But there's something different here that happens here that did not happen really in previous battles. And that is this, God throws no stones. You remember chapter number 10, what happened? Uh, they came before uh, in this battle and as they're approaching, God throws this army into a panic and God throws some hailstones down from heaven, You know, maybe some meteorites or whatever the case that, that they might be. Uh, uh, he does this, but here God does not do that. It seems as though Israel is doing all the fighting while God is seemingly working behind the scenes. God commands, do not fear, God promises, you're you're gonna win, but here there's no miracle, there's no stones from heaven, there's no sun standing still. It is just Joshua and his army doing this, they're fighting this battle. And I want you to know that that's very, very consequential and we will come back to that here shortly this morning. But let's read a little bit further and get our bearings a little bit more. In uh, chapter 11 and verse 10, it says this, In Joshua, he turned back at that time and he captured the city of Hazor. And he struck its king with a sword, for Hazor was formerly was the head of all, these, uh, all those kingdoms. And so he kind of taken the top echelon and removing the power and, and uh, the cities that had the most influence in that culture. In verse 11, And they struck with a sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. Did you see it? And there was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of those cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. Most historians don't really know what those other cities were that were up on kind of, you know, a a mound of dirt, a a high place. They're not really sure what those cities were, uh, but that's consequential as well, that Hazor was the only one that was destroyed and not these other cities. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. Uh, In verse 14, in the spoil of all these cities you know all the stuff that they had the livestock the people of israel took for their plunder but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they did not leave any who breathed just as the lord verse 15 had commanded moses his servant, so moses commanded joshua and guess what joshua did he did exactly what he was told by the lord and he left nothing undone of all that the lord had commanded uh, him to do did you see that phrase right devoting them to destruction it's twice here in this little bit of a passage that uh, that we just read and as i've said before that makes us uncomfortable we like, why would God do this? Why would God destroy a people? Like, that sounds so harsh, so unloving, so unlike the loving God that we know and that we serve. I mean, what's the deal here? Well, if you remember what I said at the very beginning, right? A parent knows what's best for his children. That a parent desires what's best for his or her kids, right? And if God is our loving father and he knows what's best, he evidently has a reason. And one of those reasons is to protect his nation, his people, his children from the dangers and the evils within Canaan. That's partially what is happening here. God wants to protect Israel from the influences of this culture. But if you remember from weeks one and two, we talked a little bit about the Canaanites, and what kind of people they were. I mean, like, you know, what was it that, like, stirred God to wrath and to anger, to, like, uh, literally desire to destroy these people? Well, let me just refresh your, your memory real quick this morning, give you a few thoughts. Maybe you weren't here with us at the very beginning. We kind of need to understand what is it about the Canaanites that's causing God to do this? Well, let me give you a few thoughts. They're not original with me. Um, They are some quotes from commentators, but I think they paint a good picture. First thing is this, and it'll be on the screen. Uh, One commentator said this, the gross sins of the Canaanites, which included incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality, resulted in a thoroughly debased society in Canaan. Boy, does it ever sound like our world today, (laughs) right? I mean, it's true, right? Sounds like our world today. God had waited to execute judgment. That was 400 years that God patiently waited for this nation to repent. In fact, he extended that another 40 years with the wilderness wandering of the nation of Israel. So 440 years, God waited, right, allowing the Canaanites, what, time to turn from their wicked ways, but they didn't, right? Right they didn't change. And so by Joshua's time, their sins, he said, which had permeated their whole culture, deserved judgment. God says, I've given you space, and I've given you time to repent of these things that I hate, these sins that that I will no longer allow to be present within this culture. And number two, he said this, uh, not only was that significant, but by wiping out the power of the Canaanites, God was, of course, protecting his people from these sins. Like, I don't want you to be influenced. I don't want my children to be influenced by these ideologies, these thoughts, these cultures that, that, that so can have an impact upon other cultures. And then the, the last thing he talked about is this: that God's come in to annihilate the Canaanites. Listen to this. It was very focused on the people who lived during this time in history. So understand this. The conquest wasn't about this. It wasn't like, oh, if you're a Canaanite, you die, right? That's not what this was about. This was very focused and very specific about a people group during a specific time who had gone so far beyond what God had called, right? So far beyond, and so God was willing to uh, judge this nation. He was going to use the nation of Israel to, of course, do this. Now, let's read on uh, in the chapter, and then I'll give you some quick practical takeaways from this today as it relates to us. Verse number 18, this is where we're going to draw the majority of our uh, application this morning so we kind of have an idea of what's happening right so verse 18 through 23 kind of wraps up uh this conquest in this battle so let's read it joshua verse 18 made war a long time with all of those kings made a war made war a long time with those kings uh, and there was not a city that made peace with the people of israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, they took them all in battle. And we know from Deuteronomy, we talked about this in weeks past, that they were, they were, the nation of Israel was to offer terms of peace. Like there was an opportunity to say, hey, we don't want to fight. We want to we you know, come to peace with you. There was that opportunity, but no one except the Gibeonites uh, was willing to do that. But it says, they took them all in battle, for it was the Lord, verse 20, the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. Meaning hardening, hardening the hearts of the Canaanites, right? Uh, in order that they, uh, verse 20, should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And Joshua came uh, at that time, and he cut off the Anakim from the hill country. Now, the Anakim were the giants in the land. If you remember all the way back to the beginning where they're just uh, uh, coming out of the Exodus, and they're, they're spying out the land, and Moses sends out those 12 spies, and, and 10 of them come back, and they're like, they're giants, we can't win. Forget it. Same people, same exact people here in verse 21. Joshua came at that time, he cut off the Anakim from the hill country, those giants that they feared at the beginning. From Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only, check this out, in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Guess where Goliath comes from years later? Gath. You remember that? Goliath comes from Gath. And so there's a small group of these giants uh, that remained in certain cities. And so verse 23, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And you're like, what on earth does this have anything to do with me this morning? Well, let me give you some practical thoughts. Let me give you some thoughts about about how God sees sin and what God thinks about evil and what God thinks about sin and how that should relate to you and I in our war on sin in our lives. And the first thing is this, the first thing is this, is that God expects us to fight personally against sin. I want you to know this morning that God desires you to fight, Christian, uh, all too often we go through life and we just like desire for God to work in my life, to to do great things in my life. When when I think God at times is like, yeah, I'm gonna fight for you, I'm gonna come alongside you, but I expect you to put on your sword, to do the hard work, and to actually fight personally against your sin, Christian. You need to fight. We often give in so easily to the sins and the addictions and the things in our lives that we just run to it. Why do we run to it? We don't have that fight within us like we should. In verse number 18, it says, Joshua, listen to this, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Joshua did. Joshua was the one, hey, I have a responsibility before God. He has commanded me. He has promised me, but I have to go fight. And I have to lead this army and lead this nation. And it says he made war a long time. Most historians say five to seven years. Did you know that? It took like five to seven years to fight against these kings. It wasn't just over in a moment. But a lot of these battles was drawn out over a period of time. And in that, in that hardship and in those battles, in those moments, we're like, this is hard. It would have been easy to give up. And it's often real easy to give up in our own lives, isn't it? Fighting against sin is hard. I've shared this story with you. Uh, some of you, you've been here for a long, long time. I had a friend in high school uh, and uh, he was older, he was in college and he was kind of this mentor type person to me and to some, uh, some of the other guys in our, uh, in our class. And, and, and he was faithful and he was in church and he just seemed to love the Lord. Uh, but then one day he decided, I am tired of fighting against sin. And I remember having a conversation we went to a wedding together and we were driving back together and he said to me he says you know John I'm just too tired of swimming upstream against the current of culture and I can't do it anymore. And essentially what he was saying was this is like I'm tired of fighting. It's too hard and every every single person in this room we know what it's like to fight against sin. We know the addictions, we know the struggles, we know we run back to it and it's hard and sometimes we're just like give up. I don't want to fight anymore. But Joshua, he fought, and he battled hard until the end, until it was accomplished fully in what God had called him to do. And God held Joshua this and responsible for that. And I want you to know this morning, God holds you and I responsible and accountable to fight personally against our own sin. Like, he wants us to fight. We cannot expect God to do all the fighting for us. He expects us to fight. Are you fighting against sin in your life? Do you have that mindset that God has about sin? How destructive it is. How 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 it can permeate not into your own life, but into the lives of your children. Do you fight? Like God expects you to. Let me share just a few verses with you that talk about this very thing, Romans chapter 8 in verse 13. I know I'm talking really fast, but I have a lot to tell you <laughs> this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8 in verse 13, it says for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Boy, that's some strong language, isn't it? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's some fighting language, isn't it? That you are to put some things to death in your life, that you are to, to, to look at those sins and say, I am going to declare war on these things and fight against them so that they don't rule over me and reign in my life. Paul would say this in Colossians 3 and verse 5. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Listen, you and I are in the scrappiest fight of our lives, and you gotta fight. You've gotta fight, Christian, for your own heart, your own soul, your own life, your kid's life. It's this battle within, and I wanna remind you, God expects you to get in the fight, and stop giving in. That's point number one. Point number two is this, is that sin will never call a truce with you. (laughs) We already probably know this, don't we? That sin is never going to call you up in life, or your flesh is never going to, like, ring you up and say, hey, you know, it's been really hard. Like, I get it. Like the temptation, I've been tempting you, and, you know, and, and, and you've been giving in and let's just call a truce. Like you wanna serve God, I'm just gonna leave you alone and let you do what God wants you to do and I'll never tempt you again. You'll just kind of live life and, and doing the right thing. Guess what? It's never gonna happen, right? Sin's never gonna call you up and make a truce with you. And we see that often within this people group that they were unwilling to repent. It says in verse number 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hibites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Only one out of all of these, these groups of people, out of all of these cities, there was only one who was like, your God is the true God. We want to worship you. Let's make a peace treaty. Everybody else is like, we're unrepentant. We're totally unrepentant. We're gonna do what we want to do. And sin is like that, isn't it? Sin is not going to go down easily in your life. Sin isn't, isn't an easy uh, battle to face, and, and we kind of just think, oh, you know, maybe it'll just be easier when. No, it won't. <laughs> no, it won't. You've got to fight. Every single day of your life, sin and temptation will not leave you alone. It will not leave you alone. This battle within us our fleshly desires. So what Paul talks about time and time again, this, this like I'm torn between these two things, I, like this struggle, my, my, my mind and my heart wants to do this, but my flesh does the exact opposite. It's a battle, it's a battle. And so, so, so this battle within us, man, we, we have this temptation always, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be there. So we have to know our enemy. We have to know, listen, you have to know your propensities. You have to know your weaknesses. You have to know the things that you are prone to. When you leave this place today and the things that will spark your anger, your lust, your passion, your pride, your arrogance, you have to know what what, as you leave this place, all of those things that are coming to your life and and you've got to, 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 to plan accordingly. Like I know myself. And I know my weaknesses. Sin is never going to call a truce with me. It's always going to be a fight. That's point number two. Point number three is that God desires for sin to be destroyed in your life. God wants to annihilate sin, right? Uh, In in fact, we would say this, that God has already uh, uh, declared war on sin, and he has won that battle, has he not? But yet we still struggle with this sin battle. We still live in the flesh. We still, day in and day out, have this fight within us. And God says, I want to destroy sin in your life. I don't want it to rule in you. I don't want you to be given to it. I don't want you to live this life up and down, uh, serving sin and serving me. I want you to serve me and know me and know the peace and rest that comes and walking with me. Verse 20, notice what it says. It says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. What does God think about sin? I want it to be destroyed. I I want it to be annihilated. I don't want it to have any power in my children's life. You know, it's interesting to me that the only cities that Joshua instigated the battle, think about this, was Jericho and Ai. They're the only cities, right? That they showed up and kind of knocked on the door, blew the trumpet and said, hey, we're here, we're going to fight, you know? Those are the only cities. The rest of them, they came to him and that was the Lord, right? That was the Lord hardening their hearts. And I've got to believe that Joshua at some point in all of this was seeing really what's happening in all of this, all of these conquests. And that is this, that God, you know, he really hates sin. That Joshua, think about his life for 40 years. I mean, that dude walked through the wilderness for 40 years and saw a lot of people die because they refused to obey and, and follow the Lord. And he saw, man, God hates sin. And then we come here and, and God is literally calling us to destroy these cities and these people groups. Why? Because he hates sin. And he knows as a loving father how destructive it can be as a good father. He's not willing to leave us to ourselves that'll be patient with us, right? Like, God is patient. You've got to take the full character of God, don't you? See, we often look at, well, God is love and God is patient. Yes, he is, but he's also a God of justice and righteousness. And his patience will only go so long. And he gave them time to repent and they did not. And when we don't, guess what? In his justice, God will us for it. See, what we don't like is this, and what the world doesn't like is this. We're actually accountable to God. Are we not? That we are actually accountable to a holy God, and God wants us this morning as his people, above all else, his people, to have the same view of sin that he has of sin, that we would actually destroy it in our lives. That we would view it the same way that we would be willing to say, man, I am going to leave here. I'm going to declare war on my sin and I'm going to have the same perspective to destroy it so it doesn't rule in my life. Not just the big sins. Because Christians are really good about this, right? Like, well, I don't do that. Like, I haven't murdered anyone. What's the harm, right? Not just the big sins, but all sin. The evil thoughts, the prideful arrogance, the gossip, the lying, the cheating, the hidden sins of our hearts, the excusable sins that we think don't matter when they actually do. God wants to destroy sin in our lives. So number one, God expects us to fight personally, right? Number two, sin is never going to call a truce to thee. Number three, God wants sin to be destroyed. We understand that. We probably have heard that before, but here's the last thing I want to share with you this morning, and that is this, is that God wants you today to find rest in him. Amen? God wants you and I to actually find rest in him. This is his desire. If you look at verse 23, we see this heart of God desiring to give this inheritance that was promised all the way back at the beginning. That I wanna give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I want you to see what it's like to walk with me and be in fellowship with me and obey me. I'm gonna give you all of this. This is who God is. This is his character. It says, so Joshua took the whole land. Like, it all happened, right? According to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. What God says is true always. You can count on it. And Joshua gave all of this land for an inheritance to Israel. In the chapters uh, that, that follow, chapters 12, 13, 14, and on, it is all about this land being allotted and given to all the, the tribes of Israel. But notice this last phrase, and it says, and the land had rest from war. I love that phrase. The land had rest from more did you know that rest is a concept that is found all throughout the scriptures that god desires to give people rest god desires for us to find true rest in him true peace in him guess what it's only found in the lord true rest it's only found when you and i live in obedience to his commands rest is available and rest is actually god's desire for us matthew this is what jesus said his very words Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want to give this to you and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How many people in this world are looking for rest in their souls? And God says it's available to you. It's available to you. You take my yoke upon you. You serve me. You love me. You worship me. And you will find rest in your souls. That's not just an eternity thing, guys. That's a now thing. That's a now thing. God wants to give you rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, talks about kind of the same thing. It says, speaking in the context of, of salvation and giving our lives to the Lord. So then there remains, verse nine, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest through Christ, through salvation, that, that, that ark of salvation through Jesus and what he has done for us. Uh, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Meaning that you didn't have to work for this. God has already done it for you. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience, the only, 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 only way to find real rest today, real rest, real peace is through believing in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's through Christ alone because Jesus defeated sin and its power over us. Listen, he, he literally broke sins back. He, he literally went to the the lengths that he did to break sins back and break sin's power over us. He broke its back so it can no longer rule over us. If that's true. Why do we run back to it? Why do we run back to it? Why do we believe the lie that sin is somehow better than what God is offering to us? Listen to what, 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 what uh, Paul describes about what Jesus has done for us. And I love this and we'll kind of close with this verse. In chapter two and verses 13 through 15, in you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, you sitting here today, me sitting here today, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. There was nothing I could do about it. I inherited sin. And I couldn't clean my life up enough to be accepted by God. It's only through Jesus. God made alive. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by this. I love this. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You and I owed God. We owed God a great debt because of our sin. And Jesus canceled it and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what Jesus has done for you and I at the cross. He canceled our debt, and he disarmed the rulers and authority. Jesus declared war against our sin, and he won for you. Are you this morning willing to declare sin Uh, declare war on your sin today. Would you stand with me as our worship team comes forward this morning to close out our service today? I I don't know what you need to do, but I would guess this morning that, that there's a lot of us that would say, you know, I'm not fighting like I used to, or I'm not fighting against sin personally, like I should. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're just waiting for God to somehow miraculously change your circumstances. He might, and he does that at times, doesn't he? But God often desires for you and I, Christian, to not give up, to not excuse, to not hide, but to go to battle. And the battle, and the greatest battle, it, it's, within, it's within us. It's the sin that so often creeps up in our hearts and our lives and God's like, I hate that because I know what it does to you and I died for that. I declared war on it. I won that battle so that you wouldn't even have to fight it. What a blessing, right? This is what Jesus has done for us. Are you willing to declare war on your sin? Listen, if you're not, Uh, you will live this cycle, and you see it repeated over and over and over again in the nation of Israel, right? We serve God for a while, and then we don't, and we're judged. That's what happens in the next book of the Bible, the judges. That we go on this roller coaster of life. And some of you, you know what that roller coaster is like. Like you're living out maybe the, the same generational sin from your parents and their parents before. And this like progression just keeps like being passed along into, into your family, into your life, into your kids. It's never gonna change unless you're willing to break that cycle. It's never gonna change unless you're willing to fight, to claw, to do everything you can, to walk in holiness and to find the peace and the rest and the satisfaction and the purpose that comes in walking with the savior. What could happen church if we truly declared war on sin? What could happen if we took off the Christian mask, and stopped pretending that we have life all together, that we don't struggle, that we don't have sin in our lives. What could happen in this community if we reflected that kind of authenticity to a world that thinks, oh, they're a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites, because that's what they think. But what if they saw true Christianity? What if they saw a rawness, a willingness to share our lives and our sin, the dirtiness of our life, Because in doing so, we show we show the love and grace and mercy of a loving Father. We worship him. The world sees true Christianity. And they see the true love of Christ living and dwelling in us. The reality is Jesus declared war on sin, and he won. He got victory for you. And this is what the world needs to hear. It's what your neighbor needs to hear. Not judgment, not rules, but that there's a savior who died for them and loves them dearly. And you and I have been tasked with this great responsibility to share that message with a world who is hopeless, finding no rest for their souls. God, this morning, we are so grateful, God, for your truth. God, we don't always understand it. We can't always reconcile the things that we read in Scripture, but we know, God, your character, that you're good and you're loving, but you're also just. And you hate, God, our sin. You hate the destructiveness that it brings in our lives and the lives of other people. God, may we hate it like you. And may we declare war on our sin today. We pray in Jesus' name.